Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. So take your Bibles, open them to 2 Kings chapter 22. As we're on the heels of Manasseh, having done great damage to Judah. He recovered later in life, but then his son Ammon in two years brings idolatry back to the nation. And again, they suffer greatly for the bad decisions of leadership and their willingness to follow bad leaders. And yet God still has yet another good king in the waiting. His name is Josiah, and he begins to reign at the ripe age of eight. Which, you know, when a king is ruling at eight, he has handlers. So it wasn't like an eight-year-old running the country. Can you imagine those of you who have eight-year-olds running the country? It's, it's not like that. He has men and advisors with him until he comes of age. And so here is Josiah leading a new season of peace and prosperity for the next 31 years. And there are really four great kings in this season that brought reformation and revival to Judah. As you think back, leading up to Josiah, there was Asa, and then King Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, and now Josiah. And yet God uses Josiah deeper than any of the other kings previously. And you know, we all need to experience revival in our lives. We all need what Josiah is bringing, and that's a return to the Word of God. We need revival, and literally the word revival means to bring back to life. And even the church in Ephesus, by the time we come to the New Testament, the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation got a small little note from Jesus Christ to return to their first love, filled with all sorts of activities, all sorts of things they were doing in the name of God, and yet they had left their first love. They left the essence of their relationship. And revival needs to come to our lives from time to time. A renewed unity, a commitment to God's word, a renewed passion for holiness. A lot of times you can tell where your heart is in relation to holiness by how you ask your questions, how you approach things in your life. You know, you can approach sinful gray areas and outright sin by questions like, well, I don't understand why God doesn't want to let me do that. Instead of just saying, you know what, God, I accept the direction for your life. My heart is to please you. I don't want to take back control of my life. I don't want to live in the flesh. I, I don't want to have that sense in my life where I'm doing my own thing. And you just know that there are times where God needs to bring new life to you. It was Andrew Murray that said, and I quote, a true revival means nothing less than a revolution. Casting out the spirit of worldliness and selfishness and making God and his love triumph in the heart of our lives. And I think if we learn anything from the Father's heart, we know that he loves to restore, to remake, and to revive. God revives marriages. He revives relationships. He revives people. He revives churches and cities and nations. And I mean, we love the God of the second chance. Do you love the God of the second chance? Have you experienced the God of the second chance? He loves to do fresh work in our lives. He loves to bring revival. And yet we need to be careful and cautious here. 
we're not to look just for some revival out there. There's a speaking of a need of revival in our country and a revival among the believers in our government and a revival in the church in the United States. And when we speak of revival, how careful and cautious we need to be to not just speak of revival out there in someone else. Because true revival is needed right here in me and in my own life. Paul, or excuse me, Peter would say that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It begins at home. And I find that many people get super excited about revival in someone else while they ignore their own lives. While they stand in hypocritical judgment of someone else, all the while we need to be revived and come back to a deep abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know, it was in the late 1800s, there was a great evangelist by the name of Gypsy Smith. And he traveled the world preaching on every continent. And wherever he preached, revival broke out. One day, a delegation of people came to him and said, Reverend Smith, we desperately want to see revival in our area. It's so dry and it's so dead. What can we do? And the evangelist responded, Go home, lock yourselves in your bedrooms, take a piece of chalk, draw a circle on the floor, kneel in that circle, and pray fervently that God would start a revival in that circle. It's so much desire to have revival out there when God wants to do a work here, now. Revival doesn't begin by praying for your husband or praying for your wife or praying for your boss or praying for your enemies. Revival begins when you get on your face before the Lord and say, let it begin with me. Let it begin with me. And here it comes to Judah with an eight-year-old kid in love with God, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozketh. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. The testimony of Josiah's life is that he walked the straight and narrow. He didn't turn aside to the left or to the right, which is a way of saying he didn't follow the temptations to wander off to the left. And he didn't follow the temptations to wander off to the right. But he stayed focused in following God. He stayed focused in what God had for him. And he continued moving forward. He became king at age eight and he reigned till he was 39. And I love that. And I pray that when the banner of our lives is written, and when we pass off the scene and someone's talking about you and someone has something to say about me that they could say with absolute certainty, you know what, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. We've learned time and time again that this isn't a statement of perfection. And when you, you look at someone and you have an example you wanna follow, you're, you're not saying, I mean, that's the perfect example, but it's very easy to see. It doesn't take long to acknowledge someone that's doing right in the sight of the Lord and someone that's doing wrong in the sight of the Lord. And I hope your passion is, you know, I just, if somebody's talking about me, I want them to say, that guy does right with, that, that guy, that gal, she does what's right in the sight of the Lord. There's so many distractions, so many temptations, just to go a little bit over here and a little bit over there. And one of the greatest words you can learn as the Christian to stay walking on the straight and narrow is simply this word, no. <laughs> Just say no 
Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Just say no. Just say no to the temptations. Resist the devil. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 from the New Living. It says, If you think you're standing strong, be careful, for you too may fall into the same sin. But remember that the temptations that come into your life are no different from that which others experience. And God is faithful. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. And when you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you will not give into it. I love that. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with every temptation will give you the way of escape, is the new King James. Always a way of escape. And the key, the door, the opening to the way of escape is the word no. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to dwell on this thought. There's always a way out. There's always a way of escape. And just like in Nehemiah's day, Josiah experienced a revival. Freshness comes back to the people of Judah under his leadership. Notice verse 3 now. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house. Give it to the carpenters, the builders, the masons, and buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Notice how, look, notice how much trust there was. He says in verse 7, However, there need, no be, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. Trustworthy men were given, given resources to rebuild the temple. So if you're taking notes, I want you to consider a few things about revival. Things to pray for, things to look for, things to ask for in your own heart as you draw that circle around your own life and your own relationship. The first thing we see in revival here in Josiah's day is that worship is restored. The temple's being repaired. You know, we'll often walk around the building here ourselves, just this building, because that's what it is. It's just a building. But the building represents something. And we'll often walk around and we'll notice things that need to be repaired. We just can't let things go. Things need to be repaired. It needs to be taken care of. And I believe that if we don't know how to take care of a building well, then people will doubt that we can take care of their lives well. I mean, if you train yourself not to see trash on the ground, if you train yourself not to see something that needs to be touched up, if you train yourself just to keep walking through and only think of yourself, then you're creating a habit that is going to spread the rest of your life. It's going to spread to every, everywhere else in your life, especially spiritually. What is it in your worship life that needs to be repaired? What is it about your relationship with God when it comes to the place of worship? Whether it be, you know, because sometimes people will go, hey, hey, I don't need to gather together with the church. You know, I can just go worship anywhere I want. And yet the Bible commands us to gather together. You, it's not that either or. You can certainly go and have a sweet Devo time in the mountains with the Lord. You can do that. It's a beautiful thing to get alone with the Lord. But not in exchange for gathering together. God says to do both. 
but there's this independent streak in us where we choose to live independently of God and his word. And one of the places you can look for is in your life of worship. One of the first things Josiah does at about the age of 26 is, we need to repair the temple, man. We need to take care of it. Get the temple repaired so worship can be restored. And it seems as if the first step toward revival is to repair what's been broken down and to repair what's been neglected. When you're in love with God, you're not interested in letting things stay in disrepair. You're not interested or even in a place of accepting things in your spiritual life that are in disrepair. You begin to examine where you are spiritually and you say, you know what, this isn't right and I'm gonna get it right with God. And the word for that that we see in the Bible is repentance, where we begin to repent of things that we've neglected. When you're in love with God, you're just not interested in strife or division or getting your way or asserting yourself. We're interested in serving others. When love reigns, we begin to see the restoration take place. And one of the first things we pay attention to is repairing our love relationship with God and our worship life. Number two, notice verse eight. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, and this is so cool, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word saying, your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, delivered it into the hand of those who do the work to oversee the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book and Shaphan read it before the king. I love verse eight. You gotta mark this. I found the word. And isn't it true in a life that needs revival, it is void and empty of the word. And you may not use the phrase, I found the word because you know where the Bible's been all along. But this is a phrase of saying, you know what? We have rediscovered the power of God's word in our lives. (laughs) How it just speaks to the situation how it's being opened and read and shared and followed. Listen, revival continues when God's word is revealed. It's found. The farther you are away from God's word, the more revival you need. The farther you and I are from living in the wisdom and the knowledge of God, I mean, imagine how surprised I have found the book. Where has it been? It's been neglected and avoided. There was this, a part of all the idolatry, all of the false worship, the word of God still survived. And that's why I always trip out around this time of the year, especially Christmas and Easter. There are those critics. Everybody gets attention now. A lot of blog posts, a lot of, a lot of headlines. All the atheists come out. They all, they're just all rise up and oh, the God is dead. Jesus is a myth, on and on and on. And every generation has experienced this all the way back to the very beginning of time, the mockers of God. And one thing you'll notice, it doesn't even take, you don't even have to be a, a tremendous student of history to find that the Bible has outlasted every single one of its critics. And if there are still critics today of the Bible, listening to me right now, think the Bible's gonna survive you too. God's word is eternal and it speaks to the situation of your life. And I would just say if you are a critic today, critic of the Bible, perhaps you've been hurt by another believer 
or a bad example has been expressed to you or you've been hurt in a church and some people have been greatly hurt by religion. We need to accept that. Those that have been placed in spiritual authority have hurt, other believers, that we need to accept that and, and we need to, to ask for forgiveness that God would be merciful on us because it's done a lot of damage to the, to the cause of Jesus Christ where it's almost like the church in some places has gotten in the way of Jesus. It's just gotten in the way. And we have our, we, we, it's a challenge to share the gospel with someone and to really encourage them that have been hurt by the church. And pain among church, among believers, really cause, causes and rises up a critical spirit in people, uh, a skeptical spirit. They don't want to trust. They've trusted and been hurt, and they don't want to trust anymore. And, and so, some of that I totally understand. So we have to be sensitive to the critics and not simply write them off. That there is an answer to every single critical issue that is brought up that toward the Lord. And we just need to be patiently. The Bible says a servant of the Lord must be gentle. And we need to learn, we need to learn how to use the Word of God gently because it's the Word of God that will revive your spirit. I mean, imagine this. The circumstances of the, of the kingdom of Judah here is that the Word of God was hidden in the house of the Lord. It wasn't preeminent. It wasn't exposed. And I think in many churches today, that's happening. That the word of God is not being exposed for what it is. It's not being unleashed and just opened. The power is not in man. It's not in the delivery. It's not the power in the church of Jesus Christ does not reside in a man. It's the word of God that's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the word of God that will speak directly to the issues, to, to the circumstances, to the hurt, to the pain. It's the word of God that absolutely bypasses man. And if you open the word of God, it will get you directly to God. You will hear exactly what he wants to say to you. And the bridge of what the word will tell you is, is that there's no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. And if you're a critic today and you're listening to this at some time, maybe even around the holidays, you're listening to this even live right now, I encourage you just to set your criticisms aside for a moment. Open up the Bible to the Gospel of John and begin to read about the sincerity and the beauty and the love and the mercy and the care and concern of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who left eternity. He left heaven and took on the form of a human person. He took on the form of a human, lived a life just like you and I did, and yet without sin. And tell me what you have, what issues you have with Jesus, who all you read of him was loving, caring, bringing justice where injustice was, bringing truth where hypocrisy was. And you know, if you, a careful student of the Bible, again, primarily to those that might be critical or even hurting from the church and being hurt in the church, primarily to you I address, you will be shocked at how Jesus is easily misrepresented. He's nothing, he's the epitome of what love is. And you know who he was the hardest on? Religious people. The very ones that might have made you such so critical. And I know if you open yourself to Jesus Christ, the Bible says, if you seek me, I will be found by you, saith the Lord. If you seek me, I'll be found by you. God is not hiding himself from you. But you know, you become so comfortable with your questioning. You be so, you're so comfortable. Some of you, and I just think this is a word from God, so we'll see if it trips you out that God knows you as you're listening to me. 
But some of you are so in love with your questions that you're unwilling to hear the answer. You so crafted your questions that you kind of take pride in, well, I've asked this question to 20 people and nobody's been able to give me the answer. And you just kind of feel like prideful about that. I have found the question that nobody can answer. Except it's just crafted in such a way where you're going to trap man and you're going to try to put God into some box. And God won't be boxed in by you. As a matter of fact, he blows out all these stereotypes by demonstrating what real love really is. And so, church, let's just take a moment. You guys listening in, let's just take a moment and pray for critics and those that are hurting. Father, I know that we're living in a time where a lot of past hurts are coming up and, and some of the hurts are directly from uh, the church and leaders in the church. And I pray for those that have become hypercritical where they didn't start out that way. And certainly not, you know, as a little child, they, they didn't start out with such critical spirits. And I just pray for their tender hearts and their hurt and the, you know, maybe it's a hard heart or they're just angry or bitter and, and it's been years and years and years. I pray by the power of your spirit that you would continue to work on them, drawing them to yourself. I pray specifically that they would take the challenge or the encouragement. It's not even really a challenge. It's just the encouragement to open up the Bible to the Gospel of John and begin to read about you, begin to be enamored by you, to be melted by you, Lord. And we pray, we, we know there are family and friends that have resisted you for a long time, and we pray for them. We lift them right before you in the throne room of grace where we will find help in time of need. And help us, God, to... Be tender and compassionate. Give us the right words. Give us the right answers. Give us the right phraseology, Lord. Protect us from the temptation of arguing and asserting and, and trying to one-up another person, but rather give us a heart to serve. Like you, like you wrote in your Bible, that we would esteem others more highly than ourselves. That as the church, we would just be the church, indwelt by your Spirit, demonstrating your love in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, when revival touches your heart, you find the word, or better yet, the word finds you, and you begin to live it out. Number three, notice verse 10. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And now it happened, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes now, you Bible students know that the tearing of clothes was an outward representation of an inward response, and that inward response is known as repentance. Revival involves repentance because when new life comes into us and God breathes new life, he reveals to us how we got here in the first place, how, we, how and what we neglected. I mean, if you have neglected the word of God, the only way to come back to the word so that it speaks to you is to repent of the sin of neglect and just say, Lord, I have. I have been far from you. Revival is repentance. There is a sense of deep remorse and a desire to change. The king tears his clothes as a sign of deep repentance, realizing how far, how far off course the kingdom really is. And remember, this is a king that what? Did right in the sight of the Lord. 
It is another example of leaders. When they repent, they repent for us, not for them. Recognizing that we're in this together, that it's us, that God, he wants to pour out his spirit on us, that he wants to do a new work in us, and that we have failed you, God, that, that we are far from you. It's not this attitude, you have been far, I've been just fine. Because there's always an area in our lives where we can grow in the grace of God. There's always an area in our lives where we open ourselves up and you're like, yes, Lord, I want to grow in this area. Forgive me for my neglect. And I love this. The king just like, hey, this is, this is the sign. I'm your leader. Forgive us, Lord. Number four, notice verse 12. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written in it concerning us. Another step number four of revival is a desire for direction. A desire for direction. The king commands the priest here to seek the Lord for his direction. Inquire of the Lord for me. Inquire of the Lord for us. Like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, when he was arrested by God and the light shone and he fell off his animal, he said in Acts chapter 9 verse 3, it says he fell to the ground, he heard a voice, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, in verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And this is the moment where Saul of Tarsus is born again. He becomes Paul the apostle. And you, can't, you can say that the greatest revival to take place in a person's life is from when they go to darkness to light, when they go from lost to found, when they go from uh, you know, separate from God to saved, when they're born again. So this is a great revival. And what does Saul of Tarsus say when, he's revealed, when God reveals himself? What does he say? He asks the question, Lord... What do you want me to do? You know fresh life has been birthed in you when you are open to do what God wants you to do, when you're asking the question. Or maybe you're in just such a timid place, God's restoring to you a new freshness, and you're asking, brother, pray for me. I want to know what God wants in my life. I want to know what he needs from me in this season, and so pray for me. And you begin to seek direction for your life. That you no longer are going in your own way, but you're going in the way of the Lord and you want to know. You want to know. You don't want to know just for information's sake. You want to know for life change because in your life you've been revived. And you're like, God, I need to know what your will is for my life. Notice verse 14 now. So Hekiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asaiah went to, mark this, Holda the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, in all the words of the book which the king of Judah read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands." 
Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. And to the king of Judah, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I'll gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the calamity which I bring on this place. And so they brought the word to the king. It's a beautiful section. I'm really encouraged by verse 19. There's a value in tenderness and humility. It was recognized by God. Two things that really aren't valued in our culture today, tenderness. You know, what seems to be valued today is harshness and cutting a harsh line and and sharing a harsh word. And, you know, it seems like the ones that move up the corporate ladder and the ones that seem to get ahead are the harsh ones. They seem to be being rewarded and the tender ones get run over and get stepped on. And the humility, not very valued today. Instead, pride and self-confidence and self-esteem and make sure you assert yourself and self, 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 self is on the throne. And we've been taught at a young age, it doesn't matter, we've been taught at a young age, self, self, self. And yet, what does God respond to? Tenderness and humility. God values tenderness. That's a theme, that could be a Bible study in and of itself of how God values tenderness and humility throughout the scriptures. Brokenness. God is attracted to weakness. It's where his strength is made perfect. It's so counterintuitive to our culture. Some of you are just fearful of having a tender heart, of expressing humility, of giving preference to one another. And that's where the Holy Spirit works in our lives and manifest himself through agape love where we begin to give preference to one another and serve one another. So I want you to see this. I want to close in this section with this woman by the name of Huldah. She is a prophetess. And understand during this time of Josiah's reign, Jeremiah and Zephaniah were available to King Josiah. He could have called upon these dynamic men that God used in incredible ways to speak forth. I mean, consider Jeremiah. If you have ever read, maybe you want to spend some time if you haven't, to read through Jeremiah's prophecy, it is heavy. He shared some difficult words from God. He shared some of the most difficult words and nobody listened to him. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because of the broken heart that he had because during this time nobody listened to him. And he had Jeremiah available to him, Zephaniah available to him. But instead, he sends these men to Huldah, a prophetess. And her answer is also a difficult one to receive. Her answer was, difficulties are on the way. God's judgment and wrath is coming. But because Josiah was tender and humble and seeking God, God connected with him and said a lot of bad things are happening, but Josiah, you won't experience him. They'll come after you. You're going to die in peace. And here they are in the midst of revival, and yet still the wages of sin is always death and judgment, eventually. 
The Bible reminds us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, don't be misled. Remember that you can't ignore God and get away with it. You will always reap what you sow. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful desires will harvest the consequences of decay and death. Those who sow to the flesh will reap corruption. That's how you memorized it. But I love how the New Living puts it. If you sow to your own sinful desires, you and I will harvest the consequences of decay and eventually death. But to those who live to please the Spirit, harvest everlasting life. Those who sow to the Spirit will reap everlasting life. And yet, it doesn't faze him. Josiah keeps moving forward in revival, which we'll get to in our next study. Worship is repaired. God's word is revealed. True repentance is offered. And this deep desire for direction all happens in a revived heart. But before we leave, I don't want us to just read over the value that God places on women in the ministry. And we can't just skip over the fact that God did not, did not inspire Josiah to go get Jeremiah. And God did not inspire to Josiah to go get Zephaniah. But rather the word of the Lord, that request for direction, went to Huldah, the prophetess. You see, God has a powerful role for women in his perfect will, both here in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and also in the new. You could say today that God has a very important role for you ladies in the church of Jesus Christ. I know this gets lost in all the debates and all the argumentation of whether women can be pastors and whether women can be teachers. Now I do believe, if you want to turn over to 1 Timothy, I do believe that the leadership, so go ahead and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, that the leadership of the church is to be male. The pastors and the elders are to be men. And yet that in no way limits not only the value or the usage of women in the church. That women are gifted with spiritual gifts to be used even as men. And so the distinction of roles and responsibilities in no way diminishes the value of women. And it's something that we all need to repent of for the Bible being used to somehow take the role of a woman and put it secondary to the role of a man. That's not God. The Bible says on more than one occasion that in Christ there's neither male nor female. Now that's not taking away the distinctions of male or female, but it's the elevation of our value, men and women, is equal in the eyes of God. Equal. Equal is spelled E-Q-U-A-L. It means equal. And don't let the debates and the arguments or even the limitations that the Bible places on certain roles in the church to then, be the, to, to then bring you to the conclusion, well, you know, this church thinks less of me, uh, God thinks less of me. It's not true. We have an example right here of qualified leaders of men to be accessible to God. Uh, excuse me, accessible to Josiah and to God. And what does God do through Josiah? He sends them to a woman, and a woman gives a strong word of prophecy that was accurate from God. Don't miss that. But now, in the role of women in the church, the most controversial passage is found right here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So turn your attention, would you, to verse 11. 
in 1 Timothy 2.11, it says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. So these verses have caused some of the most serious controversy between men and women in the church than really any other passage of Scripture, maybe uh, perhaps except for Ephesians chapter 5, another passage that emphasizes the role of a wife to be submissive to a husband. The limitations of roles is throughout the Scriptures. So for example, according to the Bible, women, you cannot ever the rest of your life ever be a husband. Did you know that? (laughs) That limitation is from God. It's not a church limitation. It's not a man limitation. You can never be a husband, ever. Men, you can never be a wife. It's impossible. God has limited that. I know in our culture war and throwing away titles, it seems like, well, you know what, everybody's... Listen, according to God's word, it's not possible. But men, you not being able to be a wife, does that make you less of a man, yes or no? Say it out loud. Are you guys afraid? Just say it out loud. Don't be afraid, men. This is God's word. You not being able to be a wife, men, does that make you less of a man? No. Ladies... You not being able to be a husband, does that make you less of a woman? No. No. So the roles and responsibilities that God has ordained does not speak to the value of a person. Let me give you a fancy theological term that will help you in this discussion. Write it down because it will help you. It's a fancy word, but it's, it's, it's a very simple word. But if you can throw big words around, it sounds like we're smart. So let me give you a big word. According to the Bible, Men and women, and here's the word, are ontologically equal. It's O-N-T-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L-L-Y, I think. You can look it up. Look it up later. It's a fancy word that simply speaks of nature. And at the ontological level, we are equal as human beings even though we possess very distinct differences, both physiologically, physically, emotionally, women and men, let me just say it on the authority of God's word, women and men are different. Does that surprise anybody? You guys are scary, like you're not working with me here. You're like scared, don't be scared. This is God's truth. And so ontologically, we're equal. And yet we're distinctly different. God made it that way. I praise God for his creative purposes. I praise God for what he has done. I praise God for the differences that he's come to us. And so, you know, we aren't going to develop this, but in Ephesians 5, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And sometimes I can be so isolated from its context of true submission unto God. That as a married couple, we, those of us that are married, are mutually submissive to one another and to the Lord. But even for those that aren't married, the body of Christ is mutually submissive. We're not going to let the world 
or our society or culture taint what God is working through his church and what he wants to accomplish. There's nothing in this passage degrading to women, putting women down, or hurting women. What Paul, what Paul is telling Timothy is, I don't allow a woman to be in a place of spiritual authority over a man. That the spiritual authority in the church has been given to men. And that leadership has been given to the pastor, the senior pastor. It doesn't mean that women can't teach at all. And it certainly, notice in, back in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence. It doesn't mean women need to be silent. This is a cultural thing as well. And from the, from the time of their communication, where in the church, in the time of Timothy in Ephesus and Corinth, Men and women were divided. Men on one side, women on the other side. There was conversations going back and forth. And he's bringing order to the worship service. But he's not saying women have to be silent in the church because in Titus, he said that older women are to admonish the younger women. That when women are praying, they're to do so orderly. Like it's not complete silence. So context is everything. And like I said, we're not going to develop this. But I just want you to know that this isn't degrading or limiting to women. Women are not to be teaching over men in relation to doctrine and theology. Doctrine is the place of authority. Does this mean a woman can never teach a man? Of course not. Because, I mean, think about the value and the wisdom that God has given to women as they study the Word of God. The the value and wisdom that God has given to women. I I have found over the years in, in ministering to men and women that women have been given a really special sensitivity to the Holy Spirit where men, you know, sometimes we don't get it. And there's balance in the body between men and women. Like, for example, if my wife is doing her devos, and she says, Ed, come down, I have something to share with you. I do not come downstairs like this. Woman, thou shalt not speak to me. You are a woman. I will not learn from you. How long is that going to last? Oftentimes the Lord gives great wisdom through my wife. As a matter of fact, guys that are married, if you're wondering what the Holy Spirit's voice sounds like, it sounds a lot like your wife. Because often God will bring someone into your life to speak a word to you when you haven't heard it from anyone else. And many times in the marriage, it's through your spouse. We aren't men to take this passage and degrade women in some way, to harm or to hurt them or to try to rule over them. I I love the insights that I hear, not only from my wife, but from my daughter, women in the church. We have significantly valuable women on our team here, serving both on staff and in leadership here. Like, this is so vital that the women in our fellowship rise up and serve with authority and with clarity, but it's clear that as women serve here, it's clear that as women are serving within the church, here in our church, I can speak to you, the women that serve here, they serve under the authority of the pastoral leadership of our church. And you know, we're not following them around. We're not, you can't say that. No, you would say it better this way. We're trusting the Holy Spirit to use men and women in our church. And yet the order of submission is necessary. Remember we learned in our servants class is that when there's godly leadership, there's to be godly submission. That's God's will. To be unsubmissive or to be rebellious or to be resistant to what God is doing is simply not blessed by God. And it's too many, it's too bad that many a man has come here to this passage and used it as a club to beat down women. That's not God's will. That's not from the Lord. You can reject it. And lest you think the Bible is chauvinistic or that Paul is, Paul 
Paul refers to the very beginning in uh, drawing back in verse 13 to Adam and Eve and says, look, this is God's authority from the beginning. This is what he's done from the beginning. I didn't make it up. This is God's order. And lest you think that Christianity, another big debate and another big criticism against Christianity is that it suppresses women. This is a challenge this time. I challenge you to take out an atlas or a globe and spin it and put a pen everywhere Christianity has taken root, everywhere the gospel of Jesus Christ has been received, everywhere born-again revival has taken place, and tell me that Jesus Christ didn't elevate the role and status of women in that society because you can flip this globe and place a pen or a, a note, on a, a little dot on every place where Christianity hasn't taken root and you can see how women are degraded and devalued apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the great liberator of all souls, especially the sub- subjection of women to the ungodly leadership of men. And the Bible simply doesn't teach putting women down or children down, but rather to the Bible elevates women, frees them, removes them from any place of subjugation. Am I saying that our nation or the status of the church at large is where it needs to be or where it should be on this issue? No, because the issue of sin still has a foothold in many hearts. It still has a foothold in many leaders' hearts. And may the Lord, man, release anybody. If anybody has that issue in our church fellowship, it is not from the Lord. And we just pray against it in Jesus' name that he would release anyone from trying to put down men or women in the name of Jesus Christ. We're to help a brother and a sister up, not push them down. And so women, I want you to know, Holda here reminds you of your value. He didn't go to Jeremiah, didn't go to Zephaniah, went to Holda the prophetess. And what a great role. There are many prophetesses in the church today. The women that are gifted with the gift of prophecy, that have the prophetic gift, that speak forth the word of God in a powerful way. If you're taking notes, let me show you just a few of the women that God used greatly in the Bible. It's all throughout the Bible. Remember in Exodus chapter 15, Miriam, she was a worship leader. And so we're so grateful for the ladies that lead us in worship. It's just a beautiful thing. God uses women to lead us in worship. Deborah, she was a judge, a national leader, used by God, Judges chapter 4. Holda, we learn here in 2 uh, Kings, she's a prophetess. We see her again in 2 Chronicles. Anna, in the New Testament, in Luke's gospel, chapter 2, she also was a prophetess. Priscilla, in Acts chapter 18, you want to know what she was, guys? A Bible teacher. Along with her husband Aquila, they taught the Bible. Acts chapter 18. Phoebe in Romans 16 was a deaconess. And remember, some of the most fruitful, godly, profitable people in all the history of Jesus' human ministry were women. How was the church in Philippi planted? There was that woman and that group of women praying by the river. And Paul met them, and a church was planted with the foundation of women. It's a beautiful thing. We need each other in the body of Christ. So as you recall, Holda, 
Let us be the men and women that are abiding in the Spirit, elevating women and men to the place that God has them. There are no second-class citizens in the church. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. The differences that we have, there are distinctions, there are God-given differences, but remember in our nature, in our humanity, in our value before God, the value of a soul, male and female, is equal. And it's the same within, for example, if you have two women and one woman has a place of responsibility and another woman has a place of lesser responsibility. Does that mean one woman is more important than the other woman? No. So even within the genders, when you have different responsibilities or different roles, it doesn't make us any more valuable than the other. Jesus saved our soul and everything we have and do is what? By the grace of God. And the differences between us, unfortunately, get elevated, and they even get exploited. But here, Holda, we're reminded that when Josiah needed direction, when there was revival, the voice of the Lord came through a woman by the name of Holda, who gave a really strong word, but also delivered the word, you know what, Josiah? You were tender, and you were humble, and I've heard you, which must have sounded very sweet through Holda's voice, through her voice box, through her personality. I think Jeremiah, he was a tender guy too, and it could have come through Jeremiah, but that wasn't God's will. God did the work through a woman, and he still does today because God uses men and women for the sake of his gospel. And so, ladies, we are grateful for you. Rise up, grab hold of your gifting, use it for the glory of God because Jesus is coming back very soon, could come back at any moment, and we all need to be busy about the Father's business. So praise God for that. Father, thank you for the privilege of of serving with so many great women and men in our church family. May you multiply them. Forgive us for any failure that we have expressed just in this church. I know as a church at large, there's been much failure, but for us as a church, We do not want to fail in this area. We want to love. We want to value. We want to cherish and honor the role of women in our church and our families. I know many are here today because of a praying mom. They're here because of a praying grandmother. I think of Timothy. He can can be grateful because it was his mom and his grandma that was praying for him and, and interceding on his behalf in the difficult life circumstance that he lived in and how you used him greatly. And what a great way to end the year, God, reminded of the value of ladies and how much you love them and how much you use them in your kingdom. Forgive us, God, for getting caught up in the debates and the arguments. Forgive us of if it's, you know, if it's happened, like valuing one gender over the other. And women can value themselves and think of themselves higher than men and vice versa. And we just waste our time. Lord, give us the the heart to serve and to serve well. Give us a heart to humble ourselves like Josiah and be tender. Be humble. And this last service of the year, last Wednesday I should say, is just Lord, would you pour out your spirit on us and forgive us. Bring revival to us.
individually, and then corporately. As we enter into the 20th year of our church history, we, we want to see we want to see more, not less. We want to serve more people, not less. We want to abide more, not less. We want to rise up and grasp our calling and grasp your gifting and surrender ourselves. And like Saul of Tarsus, what do you want me to do? We want that desire from you, Lord, to direct us, to lead us, to use us. And on this final Wednesday, if you've joined us today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you today. This is the day that God has called you to this place. The reason why men and women are equal in the sight of God is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That when he died, he died to forgive us of our sins, male and female, boys and girls, women and men. That equally we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of God's perfection. And yet today, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I invite you today, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, today is the day. And if that's you, would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you on this final gathering we have that today would be the day and that finally you would settle the heart issue that you have with God and come to him. Acknowledge him. Admit that you've sinned against him. Ask him to forgive you. Place your faith not in a drug, not in a church, not in a job. Place your faith in the God who created you. God bless you. Who else would say that's me? Today, tonight, maybe out on the radio or downstairs, God sees you. Even if I miss you in the room here, God hasn't missed you. The Bible says that literally the angels rejoice in heaven over one person that repents. God has been pursuing you. Imagine that. Sometimes people say, I don't understand why God would care about me. He's got the whole world. But he does care because he loves you sent his only son Jesus Christ to die for you and so those of you that responded pray with me okay and you'll be talking directly to God but I'll help you with the words a little bit you can talk to God you could say something like this God I come to you today and ask you to forgive me of my sins I believe that Jesus Christ lived for me died for me and I believe Jesus rose again from the dead to save my soul And I dedicate my life to following you from this night forward. And I'm asking you, God, to help me to turn away from my sinful past and to turn my life over to you, my creator. And Father, I know anyone that would pray that, you and anyone that comes to you, you don't cast away. And I just pray for the wrestling and the doubting and the fighting that's going on right now, that you would bring assurance and peace and rest to all who turn to you, and that we would have the privilege of seeing those that are here grow up in you, serve you, and their lives forever changed because tonight marks their 
spiritual birthday where they're born again of the Spirit. New life. Protect them from all the battles that they face and all the difficulties that are up ahead. And for us as a church family, God, we really want to be in the center of your will. We want to be tender and compassionate and humble. And yet we want to be aggressively obedient and aggressively evangelistic and aggressively submissive and aggressively abiding. You know, there's words that normally don't go with aggressiveness, but we want to press in, Lord. We want to move forward. We want to draw near. We desire to resist the devil and, and experience his fleeing from our lives, fleeing from the situations, releasing us from bondage, that we might walk in freedom, be men and women that declare your word with assurance, and like Josiah, experience revival. So God, thank you for our opportunity to gather for this last song to just minister to our hearts. And collectively, God, we rejoice in the souls that you save. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.